Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Well, that's the missing piece, right? You know, because we're spending so much time at each other with, we all should be doing this, we all should be doing that, instead of figuring out how to have these layers. How to have layers. I like that. Um, Let's talk about the post-traumatic slave syndrome and the mental health impact of white supremacy on our community. What are your thoughts on that? Man, I think that uh, America, most of our society globally is 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 uh, lost in the sauce of being able to weaponize mental health in ways to rationalize with different instances of violence and being able to completely marginalize mental health in order to justify other, you know what I'm saying, modes of violence. One of my high school classmates had his father murdered the day, three days after the insurrection in Colleen, Patrick Warren Sr. Oh my Patrick God. Warren Sr., his death was, is caught on, was caught on camera. Patrick Warren Sr. was having a mental health emergency. His family called that. the Colleen, Texas mental health deputy and they sent out the Colleen police department instead. There was no preservation of human life. There was no type of, you know what I'm saying, disarming methods or strategies that was deployed. As a matter of fact, one would be able to argue that law enforcement went in already agitated, aggravated, and with guns blazing. Well, we've seen in our country, though, goddamn, three days before, January 6th, we've seen law enforcement being able to prioritize the preservation of life. We've seen uh, law enforcement being able to prioritize being peacemakers and peacekeepers. And we've seen that they did not go in fearing for their lives. Patrick Warren Sr. was murdered because the law enforcement is going to say they feared for their lives. I think that when it comes to a lot of how we understand trauma in our country, I feel like when it comes to racial trauma, racialized trauma, whether historical or any type of racialized trauma, I think it's either almost a double bind. It's either completely ignored or it is seen as being yeah. normal. So like, yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? I think about it psychological manipulation was used to, to to control slaves and it was used to control black people during Jim Crow, during, you know what I'm saying, during all these times. So in my opinion, I think that when it comes to the psychological impacts of race, it's already embedded as a necessary evil in, in, in our country because they're supposed to be able to take our minds to control our bodies. Yeah. You know, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough because... You know, at the same time, you know, white people have been having therapy their whole lives and have, ac- have ac- had access to it to support their mental health based on their individual experiences, you know. But there's not, doesn't seem to be an understanding of the collective, which is what communities of color are, the collective impact and how we address that. And if you go to the wrong therapist, if you go to the wrong therapist, you're going to be re-traumatized. I mean, I got into it with, I, I told a story before, I got into it with this dude on um, this therapist, on a therapist thread. And, I, and he said, I don't think, I posted something and he said, I don't think racism is really a thing. And I said, do you see people of color in your practice? And he said, yeah. I said, that's unethical. 100%. It's unethical. 
And there's nobody managing that. There's nobody checking that out to make sure the people who are taking care of people of color's mental health know and believe and understand the impact of racial trauma and how to effectively heal. Because it could be a corrective experience in the room with a white therapist. I don't, I, I love the idea of people of color going to therapists who look like them, but it's just not realistic. So it could be a corrective experience sitting across from a, a white person and having them be nurturing and everything that you have an experience because of racism. The problem is we're not there yet. to start being trained to understand the racial That's implications it. of every one of their yeah. standards, every one of their frameworks, every one of they, and because most of them are conditioned and, and, and trained yes. to be colorblind or to make race a yeah. secondary afterthought, it's going to be always mm -hmm. that, you know what I'm saying, that, that, that potential danger because you looked at to see that there are these different ways that we see humans. Because, you know, Freud, Freud was a, was a racist. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. a sexist, you feel me? And if we're using the master signifier to talk about, you know what I'm saying, sociology, psychology, talking about fallacies or talking about fallacies, dicks basically, is like think about all of the other things that's not going to be accounted for if this is the way that you've constructed the framework of how we're supposed to be able to give other, analyze other people. You know what I'm saying? And just say to me, yeah. I think that it's a lot of stuff yeah. we're able to sanitize and romanticize off a lot of right now it's Black History Month. I just learned the the father of gynecology was doing a whole bunch of wild, crazy shit to black women. The father of yeah. philosophy in many different instances was was uh, had a very anti-black. You know what I'm saying? The father of mm -hmm. man, it's just that every time we think of somebody that's seen as the father or the pioneer or the person of a particular industry, they all have very anti-black understandings of blackness and black people that is structured into yeah. the whole field. You know, it's absolutely true. And it's one of the reasons I struggle teaching theory because I teach at the graduate level. It's one of the one of the reasons I, sh I struggle because it's not been well integrated at this point. But it's also the reason why I ran a, a clinical group for white clinicians who desire to be more anti-black racist in their practice. And it was really informative and helpful. And, it, and that's the kind of thing you're talking about. You know, white people listen to white people, but but black people are the ones who are gonna teach them how to get this work started, how to really get in there and get your hands dirty. Cause that's our history. That's what we've done. You know, it takes a lot for us yeah, to get and, where and, we are. And, and what I know though, is that the slippery slope of it all is that most of the time power only want to listen to power or privilege only wants to listen to privilege. So I find yes. that one of my, one of the reasons of why my platform has been kind of exploding the way it has is because I'm a straight cisgender black man talking about homo homophobia mm. and heteronormativity and trans issues. And as a result, I know that I have this particular power and privilege when it comes to these, you know what I'm saying, uh, social locations. Yeah. So people are more likely to listen to me. When you think about being able to be a black person trying to train white folks how to do something, there's a lot that has to be unpackaged. I feel like psychologically, because it's going to be, you know what I'm yes. saying, we just conditioned. So again, power only one listen yeah. to power. Yeah. You know, the way I explained it to him is that, you know, it's the air you breathe. You know, these these things that you've learned, are the, it's it's in the air you breathe. How do you separate yourself from the air that you breathe? That's why you have to begin to look at, you know, how possibly to deconstruct it. It's, it's deep. You're right. So I have a, a, a question for you. I, I already know the answer, but I'm going to pose it anyway. Uh, <laughs> how does uh, mainstream media work against us? 
how does main, mainstream media works against us by forcing us into these little uh, rigid forms of performativity and representation and saying that if you want to be mainstream, you have to make sure that you, you, your blackness can be performed, represented, and positioned in this little rigid square hole. And I think that that's what it comes to nine times out of 10. I feel like most minority positions, especially black people, are given little bitty shapes and it's like, if you can make this shape, you can be integrated into this space. If you cannot make this shape, you cannot be integrated into this space. And usually what it, mean, what it means to be made into that space is to cut off pieces of yourself to make it where you can fit. And I think that that's usually what the assimilate, because what we're talking about, we're talking about assimilation. And assimilation means that you're right. going to take on particular values and particular standards to be, to, to, to be seen as credible and to be seen as being legitimate. And I know because there are certain things I'm not willing to cut off or there are certain things I'm not willing to negotiate, I know that's going to be one of the reasons of why we talk about verifications, blue checks, and mainstream. It's like that's going to be one of the reasons why I'm not able to get a full foot in because I know it's certain shit that's not negotiable. If you can't take my unapologetic blackness the way it is, it ain't for me. And I know many different parts of mainstream is not going to be able to handle me. I'm an, I'm an acquired taste. And most of us should recognize we're an acquired taste. And what we know about acquired taste is not for everybody. And the people that's even for, they have to build up a taste to be able to even, you know what I'm saying, appreciate it on their palate. You know what I'm saying? I know that about myself. So the mainstream, I feel like really treat yeah. us, all of us like that though. We really all acquire taste. And what, depending on what industry you're trying to get into, it's going to have the unique appeal as a black person that you had to the industry. It's so true. It's so true. There's nothing to add to that. What do you think our work is at this point in the African-American community? What's our work? I think that our work right now is really try to build independence, man. Political, social, economic independence. Can we do for ourselves by ourselves? I necessarily mean we have to exclude nobody, but it definitely means that we have to think about exclusively being able to function for ourselves. Because I think that if we have to be dependent on any entity, system, institution, that's going to also be whooping our ass that automatically to me takes away from our autonomy and from our, you know what I'm saying, independence to do and be. And I think that when I think about other groups and how they build institutions and systems, I think that there is a notion of independence that is there that I think that in our country, in the Western world, I think that most societies, most governments are built to, to, to almost, I feel like suture, that's the word I want to use, suture that dependency. You know what I'm saying? And I think that us black people, if we can recognize how to build for ourselves by us, almost FUBU, you feel me? Them brothers that did that from New York for us, by us, that's the motto. Can we build institutions for black people that are ran by black people that are hopefully funded by black people and needs to be funded by black people for us, by us? Is that possible? You know, and so what I asked, the next question I'd ask then is, you know, historically, we know what's happened when we've done that. The oppressor comes in, takes yeah. it away, burns it up, or, or yeah. buys you out, and then sells yeah. it back to so, you. So, hey, power is the ability to define to define the phenomenon and make it act in a desired manner. Most people don't have the power to understand the, his, the history of the phenomenon that you and I are talking about right now. So I think that most yeah. of us are conditioned to buy into capitalism that says that if me and you can build this great thing, we should value the value that's placed on this more than the ownership and more than the ability to be able yes. to control it. So we'll have people yes. that create, you feel me? I, I seen I, I seen a few days ago that Puff Daddy is suing the company that he sold Sean John to. 
because this company tried to use. I didn't know. I ain't know Puff Daddy sold Sean John. You feel me? Neither. But you know what I'm saying? The yeah. power in, you know what I mean? Black blackness and black culture means that you and I might take our ass to a mall and we might be feeling very proud and black that day. You know what we might say? Yeah. I wanna buy black today. Our black asses that picked up Sean John thinking that we support the black business, not knowing his black ass that I already sold the business. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's so true. Look, 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 you got me all revved up here because the same thing with black hair products. Absolutely. You start looking at who owns them. It's, I couldn't believe how many Absolutely. weren't owned, were, were white owned. Last year, last year, that's when I got my epiphany last year is when it was, I was on Twitter, shout out to black Twitter. Black Twitter is a great space for education. You know what I'm saying? Black Twitter just really just, just, just talking about to me, the commodification of blackness or the fungibility of blackness. Or the or the commodification of blackness, you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, it's to, to me. I think that the way we the way we think about products, clothes, hair, can also be said, you know what I'm saying, about different you know dances and different apps. Like, hey, just right. Well, listen to all the music. Yeah, on but, but we know it's a lot to be said in how we're able to sell black aesthetics, right? I'm also from Bryan, yeah. Texas, too. Yeah. And, in, and being from Bryan, being from Bryan, Texas, outside of my homeboy that had his father murdered by the police that was for mental health, the woman that was on the carpenter that was on Aunt Jamama, that black yes. woman from my hometown. You know what I'm saying? From Bryan, you feel me? If you go to her birthstone, her birthstone, say, you know what I'm saying, on the birthstone, Aunt Jamama, you know what I mean? But thinking about it like shit, that company saw her her likeness and her image 60, 70 years. You know what I'm saying? The woman got paid cents on the dollar to take the picture. She bought more into the symbolic, priceless nature of being able to use her image as a black woman because, you know, you tell her y'all, y'all ugly. You know what I'm saying? So it was just like, you know what I mean? Yes. And so when you think about it, it's like, shit, this company was able to capitalize for decades off the likeness of a black person. And me thinking about it as a child, I went there and I bought things like Aunt Jamama because I identified with the brand as a black person on the brand. Yes. Hey, Afro pessimism is about like that, that right there is making like that's black fungibility. Made that black body fungible to drive profits. Yes, that is so clear. That is so clear. Not even owned by black people. This whole time. Think about it. Think about that from an emotional standpoint, emotional, spiritual standpoint. We buy a product I mean, thinking that we're empowering ourselves yeah. and it's not yeah. empowering ourselves. And think about the gaslight nature is somebody might be listening to my voice right now thinking like, you guys are racist. So you don't buy products because it's by black people. It's like, well, damn, you go into the store and you don't even think about who made the product because you know the person white or you don't even think about it because you don't think about <laughs> exactly. it. We want to be able, and this yeah. what it mean though to me about group, group economics is like, hey man, I can get paid this many different ways. But if I got to go outside of my community to spend that dollars, how much is my community benefiting from it anyway? And I think that's what we got to sit with. I make a whole bunch of money. And I go buy up a whole bunch of Fendi, Gucci, and Prada. Shit, how much that's going to circulate in my community? Exactly. How much you say? <laughs> I think you heard me right. <laughs> All right. So you are most definitely an ally to the LGBTQIA plus community. Damn right. You got called out and you responded humbly. Why? 
I get, it's, it's how I put it right here, man. I've been traveling the country talking about racism for a long time. And I'm always trying to get white people to understand what it means to stay implicated in your position. And I always try to teach white people and preach to white people about how you should be able to see yourself as the bad guy or the bad person. And I just think that if I claim to really be a ally of the LGBT community, I have to be able to be called out. And when I'm called out, I can't have no knee jerk reaction to being defensive. And I can't just say, sorry, 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 quickly to try to get you to shut up with your criticism. I got to reflect and sit with what the hell I did. Why I'm being called out on it. I'm going to sit on it and think about how it made me feel when I was doing it and how it made me feel now being called out about it. And then I'm not as, as I'm not in the churches I used to be at all, at all. <laughs> but I learned a lot of great things from my Southern background. You know what I'm saying? Southern Baptist background. You feel me? So shit, I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn away. So I think that if I claim to be a ally of the LGBT community and somebody called me out for being sexist or for being uh, for being transphobic or for being heteronormative, I need to be able to sit with that and try to be better. You feel me? I wake up every day trying to figure out how can I be a better ally to the LGBT community? How can I figure out how much more of a piece of shit I am with being transphobic? And if I think that because I read a particular chapter or I watched a book or I had a conversation with somebody from the LGBT community and this must obviously prove that I can't be transphobic. I think that's Sean full of shit. And I think that, that that's how a lot of white liberals are able to not be held responsible and accountable for what they do to get in the way of progression for black folks because they think they are in line with black folks. And I know that even if I can be for progression for LGBT community, this don't mean I'm not immune for getting in the way for progression of the LGBT community. So if my straight black ass get in the way, call me out. I want to get out the way. If I want to really get out the way, I can't be defensive. And you know what I'm saying? I just think that I want to also be a human. You know what I'm saying? I ain't ready to make the analysis yet, but I do think that there is something to be said about how black men bear the brunt in terms of being canceled. You know what I'm saying? I'm very conscious of that. You know what I'm saying? I'm human though. I'm going to mess up. I'm 30 years old. I'm just getting started. You feel me? I'm going to mess up a lot between now and I turn 40. You know what I'm saying? But I always want to show that I'm willing to be genuinely sincere about what I did. And, I, and you know what I mean? I want to make people I called me out. And I feel like if I got a white person or a white, a white friend or a company or organization that did something, I don't want to make it where it's like, you know, consciously came and gave us a two-hour workshop so we can't be racist. And damn it, if one of my coworkers try to say I was being racist, I'm going to say I went to the Conscious League workshop. How can you call me? Nah, we ain't doing that. You feel me? And I think that if it, because I feel that way, I got to keep that same energy with myself. I'm probably going to get called out again. I make so much content. My personality is very kind of whatever. I try to be mindful of what I'm doing, but I'm not scared to mess up. I'm not scared to, to be called out. I'm not scared to be wrong. Well, that, that's the next level of consciousness. You know what I mean? Like you, it, it's been elevated. Yeah. That's just that's just the reality. Not everybody is that. Yeah, I just don't. I just, I'm I'm cool with being wrong. Like, I'm, look, look, uh, I got sick. I'm going on sixty two, and I and I'm here to yeah, tell I you. I turned thirty in December. I'm 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 I, I, I ain't been thirty for sixty days yet, but I'm here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and you're on the track for something big. That's for real. I know that for sure. What does it mean to change the narrative? To me, what it means to change the narrative is to think about because I'm an English teacher as well, right? 
And what I teach my students mm -hmm. about author's purpose is thinking about three questions. Why should you care? What is the motive? Why should you care about what the author is writing? What is the motive behind what the author is writing? How was the author trying to make you feel? I think when it comes to thinking about changing your narrative, I feel like we should ask ourselves critical questions around the narrative that's going on now. The narrative right now, who's writing that narrative? What is the feeling they trying to make us like, what they trying to make us feel? What is the motive of this narrative? Define the phenomenon, make it act in a desired manner. For me, what it means to control the narrative now in this instance is for me to be unapologetic in what I do and how I'm doing and how I structure or how I determine what I'm going to kind of be unwaveringly stand positioned on is me kind of figuring out and knowing what it is. So to me, if I prioritize black independence and I know that how I appeal to white people can get in the way of black independence, I'm going to control the narrative and make it where I'm always thinking about black independence and I don't give a damn about how comfortable I make you feel. If I make you feel uncomfortable, but I'm still going towards black independence, well, my narrative says this is deprioritized, secondary, and this is priority. You know what I'm saying? And I think that when it comes to Black History Month, think about the narrative. We celebrate black people that are integrated into white spaces and places. Here's George Lee, the first African-American to make it into the national debate tournament. Here is, you know, you know what I'm saying? To me, I think that psychologically that, that, that does something to the narrative where we start to celebrate white supremacy, where it's like, can we find throughout history white black people that have made white folks feel comfortable? And when we find them, we're going to celebrate them. We're going to make historical archetypes out of them. You know what I'm saying? To me, controlling the narrative means that I now think about black history outside of their appeal to white people. I think about not only the Malcolm X's, but I also think about the, you know what I'm saying, uh, Fannie Lou Hammers. I think about the, you know what I'm saying, Marshall P. Johnson's. I think about black liberation outside of being accepted by white people. And a lot of times I fear that black progression is pushed into white acceptance or white integration. And I think that that's to me control the narrative. It's like, are we gonna celebrate black people getting into white spaces? Or are we gonna celebrate black folks creating black spaces? To me, it's a trade-off. If I celebrate black yeah. folks going into white spaces, that creates a trade-off and devaluing the black space that black folks got to leave to get into the white space. And I think that's controlling the narrative. I shouldn't be happy to be around white folks like that. Not saying white folks is bad, but I should value my own people too. No, I feel you. But here's the problem with that. You know, you get into a, you know, an age thing. You know, it's like, you know, I've been around this long and when I see black people being represented you want to embrace that, but you're right. You have to keep the consciousness about where's the black space to celebrate, you know, what black people are doing with black people and for black people. Now, because think about it. White folks wasn't crying to be represented in our stuff because they didn't care about it. Yeah. And we recognize that. And that's the reason why we fought so hard to get into white spaces and places. This impacts yeah. black independence. Think about it from an educational standpoint. If I want all of my kids in my neighborhood to go to the white school, what does this do to the black school that's right down the corner? That's right around the corner. This drops enrollment. This drops funding. This drops resources. There is an automatic trade-off. There is no way that we can have a kumbaya racial utopia. You feel me? It's being it's just being straightforward and being real. Ain't no, I can have my cake and eat it too. This is what the instance is right here. If you want to celebrate making it and be, being represented by white people, trade off. That's it. At what cost? That should be the question. 
at what that's, cost that's do you value representation? Yeah. yeah, well, that's what we have to ask ourselves. And representation for who and by who? And that's where we start getting into yeah. the, hey, man, this is the reason why we did it, because we've all been conditioned to prioritize representation. You feel me? I'll never forget this right here. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a group of very intelligent, courageous black women at the University of Oklahoma. They made a group called Unheard. Me and my colleague, Rashid, two black men, had to sit with these black women being able to garner a lot more, you know what I'm saying, steam than we were able to, and we felt like we were more radical. And we was around long because they was younger than us too. You feel me? And though I think that we was being on like some um, hyper-masculine bullshit where we was hating on the sisters, I do think that I was able to come with a good criticism though, just in general, outside of them. You feel me? They was called unheard. I have a dream. The most heard speech of all time. Most black people, we believe that if we can be heard equals value. And most of the time being heard literally equates to representation. Correlation is not causation, right? We always said in debate. Just because you can be integrated into a space or heard in a space don't mean you're valued in that space. You yeah, feel me? And it's just like, our, historically, metaphorically speaking, it's like America is a big-ass piggy bank. The American piggy bank said that we only align for dollars, quarters, and dimes. No nickels, no pennies allowed. America recognized, well, damn, we could raise the equity of this goddamn piggy bank if we start allowing for nickels and pennies to be celebrated and to be integrated into the piggy bank. Most of us celebrated like, yes, we used to not, us pennies and us nickels used to not be allowed in the piggy bank and now we can be in the piggy bank. We've made it. Yes. Oh, man, that's a great analogy. We're going to gloss over and ignore it. You still a penny compared to 25. You still one cent compared to 25 <laughs> that's cent. Great. You still five cents compared to 10 cents. You feel me? And most that of us great. don't recognize most of our beef is with valuing. That's the reason why they can say, hey, George Lee, because you got your degree next to white people, and you were able to take shits next to white people, you could drink water next to white people, this obviously means that all that race shit you talk about, you're a victim. You like being stuck in the past. You're ungrateful. You're entitled. That's not the issue. I'm not valued in those spaces. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And to me, that's what we're getting at, is that the representation, we start to, to me, that's when I start talking about being lost in the sauce. We're lost in the sauce mm -hmm. of integration and representation. And we don't recognize that it's really the value and more and more importantly, the independence and control. Because being real with you, I don't give a damn if I was value at the same as a, as a dollar or a quarter. If I can't control the means of my production like they can, then shit, I don't care about that value then. You feel me? If I still got to watch my yes. back when I go into the store, because think about it, I can have, I can, I can be like Oprah and have $25 billion in my pocket. Yes. You feel me? And walk through the wrong, the wrong antique store. And them, they see my locks and see my skin and think I don't belong there. I got the money. I got shit. I can own the place. Shit, I got more money than the person that owned this mud. That doesn't change the value of right. my skin color, though. Oof. I've been integrated into the economy. It don't change. You feel me? It's like I live in a, I live in a white neighborhood now. You feel me? I, I, I was born and raised in the hood. I grew up in the hood. I worked my ass off now. Now I live in a more white neighborhood. It's more middle class. I think about all the time, it's like, man, what my black ass really doing here, though? You feel me? I can get the same house a little cheaper in the hood, and I also kind of walk around this mug. I want to go jogging or walking or running. I got to think about somebody, I'm all Auburn in my ass. You feel me? 
at a certain time of the night, I might, might you know what I'm saying? Thinking about Dr. Henry Louis Gates. You feel me? It's just like, man, it's get real out here. I can work my ass off. I can be the biggest hustler. I can be the most educated. And it don't change my skin color. To me, the narrative should be about that. We think that I can be a bootstrapper. You feel me? I can work my ass off and get to be at the Harvard University. And I won't have, I won't be called, the laws won't be called breaking into my own home. To me, that's capitalism. Make it be like, hey, well, with JD Fuller, you you made it out of your community. Your parents made why? How come how how come they can't make it if you can? That doesn't take into account that even when I make it out of my community, I still got what? And to me, that's to me, I say all oh, this rent is all about the narrative. The whole name is the whole rent. I ain't forgot. I ain't forgot about what you asked me. The whole point is about controlling the narrative and about what the narrative is, about who benefits from the narrative, about the implications of the narrative, political, social, economic, and thinking about who gets to push the narrative forward and who's the narrative being pushed forward against. All those questions yes. you got to me think about very critically to be able to think about what it means to control the narrative. If you ain't ready to ask those questions, then you ain't ready to think about control the narrative. Man, I could talk to you for another hour. I love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna just want you to plug whatever it is you're doing before we yeah. sign on. So you can find me at uh georgeleespeaks.com if you're interested in getting a professional development workshop about diversity and inclusion. I'm a real live edutainer though, you feel me? I'm a real unapologetic yeah. in what I do and how I do it. So if you think that your co-workers, your employees, your team members ain't going to be able to take it, then I probably ain't going to be the services for you. You know what I'm saying? George Lee Speaks. I'm going to keep it real, though. I'm a, if, if, if your team can embrace the education of discomfort and getting into emotional intelligence or civility in the workplace or the unconscious consciousness of racism or systems of power, then holler at me. I also have my own podcast. The Chop Up Show with two of my colleagues, two of my debate colleagues, uh, all of us very pretty much best friends at this point. Um, all of us debated in college. We talk about a lot of different stuff, kind of what we talked about today, how we talk had this conversation right now. That's kind of how our podcast flows as well. The Chop Up Show available on Spotify and uh, available on it's uh, awesome. uh, Apple Podcasts, man. Oh, yeah, and, and YouTube. YouTube. And then the last thing is... The Consciously, available on all social media platforms. And Peep Game, even if you have never did a SAT or ACT, even if you have no interest in enrolling at a college, when you cut on that goddamn screen and you see Consciously on your screen, I'm trying to give you a upper division college course without you having to enroll, keeping it a stack with you. You feel me? Education is elevation. That's my motto. And when you come across my videos, I'm attempting to give you a college upper division level course without you having to step into the classroom. Race, class, gender, ability, sexuality. I'm going to do it from a black perspective. I love being black. I'm proud of being black. And I'm not going to do it from a respectability perspective. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to talk about it from how I talk about it, though. You feel me? Tap in with me. The Consciously, GeorgeLeeSpeaks.com. Chop up show. Appreciate y'all for having me out. For sure. This was amazing. And I just want to uh, thank you so much for getting back to me right away and being willing to do it. I love it. I love you. I think you're awesome. You. Love is mutual. I, I enjoy being here. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.